welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, friends. Uh, I'm Micah, by the way. I would give Jenna, with my help on that announcement, maybe like a B, B plus. Um, but in all seriousness, <laughs> to be fair, uh, the staff at Awaken can tell me at any point during the week that my sermon was underwhelming. So you all could tell me that if you want to. You know, everyone's everyone's. It's fair game around here. Open season on anybody, right? Uh, in all seriousness, though, very very excited about this little um, tailgating coob cook-off. Um, it, you, you don't have to be good to play, Coob. There will be a champion, I will say this. This is like, this is a tournament. This is a bracketed tournament. We've got a spot for eight teams and single elimination, and, you know, the winner gets the, the honor of, for at least one year, to be called and, and crowned the Awakened Coob, first annual Awakened Coob champion. So, um, I mean, it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. So get your tickets at the Discover Awaken booth. Popcorn will be sold as well. Um, hi, friends. Are you all, uh, are you awake this morning? Okay. You don't look it. If I'm being honest from here, you look a little sleepy, so do we need to do some jumping jacks or dance moves or anything? No? You're good? Okay. Uh, Judges chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We're going to be in Judges. If you're new to Awaken, welcome. We're in a summer series called Lost in Translation. So we take uh, a look at some of the most difficult passages in Scripture, either hard to interpret or hard to Hard to read, um, bizarre, uh, in this case a little bit of all three. A lot of churches steer clear of passages like this in the Bible. There's sort of like a, a center of, of, of Bible verses that people typically teach or preach on. And we at Awaken just aim the helm of the ship at, at these things in the summertime and just see what happens. If nothing else, it's kind of like, like a car accident. Like you just can't stop watching. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh, that was bizarre. That's sometimes what happens. So you never know. Maybe that's today. I don't know. We'll see, Philip. Are you ready? Okay. Um, Some people say the Bible is boring. I was talking to my 13-year-old daughter this week, and I was like, Hadley, what's a synonym for boring? She said, bland. I said, that'll work. Some people think the Bible is bland and boring, and I would submit to you they have not read the story of Ehud in Judges chapter 3. This is a mix of... uh, I think that some of our, our most successful TV scripts in 2017 find their home in this story. I'm not kidding you. One author says that the story of Ehud and his left-handedness in the book of Judges, which is a bit like Game of Thrones meets House of Cards. In other words, it's a really violent book involving power struggles and assassinations and questions of who will rule and who will be killed and where is God in any of it. <laughs> Man, Wow. I'm going to just keep laughing at all my jokes. So, (laughs) Judges chapter 3, stand if you can, and we will read from the text. Again, starting in verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked the Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. The city of Palms is Jericho, by the way. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to the Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. (laughs) 
After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace, and he said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in after it, over it. Then Ehud went out on the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. (laughs) But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked unlocked it. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images, escaped to Sarah. Where he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into our hands. They followed him and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we come to this story and your text, uh, this word that we have come to love and um, finds its home in the center of our community, I pray that you would speak to us, that we might find uh, a word, uh, an encouragement, an exhortation, something that would invite us to take one step towards you and who you have made us to be, who you uh, called us to be, who your son Jesus died to enable us to be. By his spirit. I pray in the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I'm entitling this sermon The Fat King in the Southpaw. Did you know that a Southpaw is a baseball reference? It had to do with all the baseball fields being built in the same direction because of the sun and whatnot. And so when a left hander would stand, his left hand would be his south facing hand. There you go. Southpaw, I actually, I, wanted, I want to split this up into two distinct parts, and this, I'll tell you, like, this story is just fascinating. It's so interesting. Um, I mean, all the, all the stuff at the end about all of these men, vigorous and strong, not one of them escaped. 10,000 struck down. It's kind of like you can hear the puffed-up uh, retelling of this story, like, nobody escaped. They were all giants, and we slayed them. So I want to talk about the story. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we forget that this is, oftentimes, beautiful uh, literature. Like, if you were to just take, for a second, take aside or set aside our commitment and convictions to the Bible because of its its divine nature, and just set that aside and just read it as a book, as a story, especially the book of Judges, it is fascinating. So I want to unpack a little bit of that. Because I want to try to expand our imagination a little bit. I want to see if I can't open the horizons for us. Maybe you grew up with the Bible and it's been this like stilted, boring, as my daughter says, bland book that nobody can understand that has no fun in it and nothing of interest. You clearly have not read this story. So I want to try to open that up a little bit, right? And then I want to move on to like the story within the story. 
This book, Judges, and this story, one of, its, one of its accounts in the book of Judges, is a part of a larger story. It's a story about Israel, and it's a story about all of the world and humanity in the Bible. And so I want to look at the story within the story. How does this story mirror or echo other things that we find in the text? And so we'll explore some of that. Some of the things that are said theologically, the way the storyteller tells the story, they're, they're actually very, I would argue, um, uh, intentional ways that this story is told that connects it to previous ones that we've already heard in the Bible. So I want to try to tease some of those out and see if maybe 3,000 years later, this story about a fat king and a southpaw has anything to say to you and I. And of course, as you, you might know, if you've been around here, I would submit to you that it does. It absolutely does. It's making claims about the God that we say we gather around over and against other gods in its day and age. And it's also making a claim, I would submit, about violence. And so we're going to end there. It's going to be a real encourager. Are you ready? Okay. The story. The main character of this story is a guy named Ehud. And Ehud in Hebrew, Hebrew uh, names mean a great deal. So when you would have read this story as, as its first readers, you would have not read Ehud like a name disconnected from. You would have read, where, his, where is the splendor, or where has the splendor gone? That's what Ehud means, which is fascinating when you think about Ehud, this dude, and the story in its context. So just a little bit of review, if you didn't know. This is the Bible in a nutshell. Go ahead and put that slide up if you can. Uh, from left to right, you have the beginning of the Bible, basically all the way to the end. Some would argue that the Bible as an event, begins with the Exodus. Interesting idea. Um, but the Exodus is the first kind of major event in the story, historically speaking. And so the Israelites come out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they enter the land, right? Canaan, the land flowing in, with milk and honey. And it's in the land that they begin to struggle with what does it mean to be God's people, this new founded, newly formed group of people that follow Yahweh, not other gods. And so they're working that out and trying to be faithful to one God among a pantheon or all kinds of options. It's like a buffet, a bad buffet. And they're trying to just pick one, one dish, right? And it's Yahweh. So that's what the period of the judges is all about. After that, there's one kingdom. If you remember, they ask for a king. God's like, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And they say, we want a king. The Johnsons have a king. The Millers have a king. We need a king. And so God says, fine, I'll give you a king, and we get Saul and David and Solomon, and then we get the divided kingdom at about 900, and so you have the northern kingdom, 10 tribes in the north, the southern kingdom, two tribes in the south, and then both of those kingdoms are taken off into exile, right? Some are uh, come back and rebuild the wall, this is the story of Nehemiah, and then there's 400 years of silence, at which point Jesus comes out a light from the darkness, according to the book of Isaiah, and, uh, and then you have the rest. So that's the Bible in a nutshell. Grace and peace. See you next week. I'm kidding. I have a lot of material here, clearly. The period of the judges is on the left, and that's where we are, right? So we are in this context where Israel has left Egypt. They're now living with no king, right? And they're trying to figure out how to be faithful to God. Ehud... His name means, where is the splendor? Why are there being sent judges? It's as if Elvis has left the building, right? Like, where is the splendor of the Lord? Where is the presence of God in our midst? And they're asking this question because they're making these decisions which allows, or which 
God basically says, well, if you're going to do that, okay. And people are like, where is the splendor? It's fascinating that the, the, character, the main character of the story, that's his name, where is the splendor? So the writer says that they have done evil in the eyes of the Lord, right? This is why they found themselves in this place where God sends them a deliverer, in this case, Ehud. They've done evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the consequence of evil is that they're under the rule of Moab, King Eglon, for 18 years. And I think for many of us, when we think about evil, we think about it in terms of a spiritual situation, right? It's a spiritual problem, or someone who does evil or is evil is a spiritual state of being, and therefore it has a spiritual consequence, which may be someday, some, somewhere else, someplace. But what's fascinating in this story is the evil that Israel is participating in has political and economic and social consequences. So the decisions that they're making as a nation, which the writer calls evil, have political consequences, and they have social consequences, and they have economic consequences. And so there are people who are being oppressed by foreign rulers, and there's not enough food to go around. And there's all kinds of ways that things are breaking down because of their decisions, their doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. So it's not someplace, somewhere, somewhere else that this spiritual state of being is going to have consequences, but it's right here, it's right now, because of decisions made by a nation state, which of course has no meaning for us in 2017. Now this is where the story gets really interesting, okay? Uh, it's, the text is very clear that Ehud is a left-handed fellow, um, which is like, why, who cares, right? Why bother with that detail? But it's pretty clear that the writer wants us to, to clue in on something. And you should know that there's only three times in all of Scripture that it's mentioned that someone's left-handed. And I think two of them, correct me if I'm wrong if anybody knows, but I think two of them are this guy. So, like, one other person in all of the Scriptures are left-handed, right? You might be thinking of this, uh, a movie might be playing in your head, like, uh, you, you're just, you keep smiling. I know, something you don't know. Oh, really, what's that? I am not left-handed! You remember this one? Princess Bride, right? It's basically, that's where, they got, that's where they got the script. It's worth noting that lefties, they're so uncommon, no one would be left-handed, right? Even in our history, in American history, the Salem witch trials, some people connected witchcraft to being left-handed, right? So even in our consciousness, there's, a, there's a, an effort to, when kids showed signs of being left-handed, like they would, don't do that, or there were ways to steer them away from that. So no one would have been left-handed in the scriptures. Which is fascinating because Ehud, where is the splendor, the left-handed warrior, is the son of Gera, a Benjamite, right? So what? Who cares who his dad was? Until you know what Benjamin means in Hebrew. Ready for this? Cue the music. Did anyone watch Save, uh, not Save the Last Dance, but the dance show? Um, cue music? No, no one did. <laughs> Only you and I, Adley. Cue the interesting music. Ehud, where is the splendor? The left-handed warrior is from the son or from the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, my friends. Son of my right hand. Isn't this interesting? So the left-handed warrior, Ehud, whose name means where is the splendor, is from the tribe that means son of my right hand, and he makes a double-edged sword. I mean, come on, right? You can't, it's like crafty writing here. It's just great. It's good stuff. Ehud, he straps, the writer makes very clear, like twice, he says, he's the left-handed warrior, he straps this little sword that he makes to his right thigh, and he sneaks it through TSA security. 
Why is it interesting that he does this? Because if you're in a context and in a culture where no one is left-handed, everyone who's trying to sneak in a dagger to kill the king would put it on their what thigh? Left thigh, if you're right-handed, because everybody knows this is an awkward move to try to like pull a dagger, but if it's not, it's a pow! If you put it on your left hip, your left thigh, you could sneak it in, and if you're right-handed, you could do some damage quickly, but if it's on your right thigh, it would be awkward, right? So Ehud, the left-handed warrior, whose name means where is the splendor, who's from the son, the tribe of, son of my right hand, takes the dagger he made, puts it on his, le- his right thigh, and sneaks into the king, okay? So you know, he's sent by Israel to offer a tribute to offer a tribute to the Moabites, right? Which is like an offering of some sort. And so he comes in, he offers the tribute, he leaves with all of his pals, his cohorts, and then he decides to go back. He's got a message for the king, right? How do you know you're going to make it in with your dagger? You give it a go, and then, okay, this can be done. So he goes back to the king, and he says, I have a secret message for you. How do you gain the hearing of one of the most powerful people in your world who may be a little full of themselves? You say, I have a message that's only for you, buddy. Secret. It's only for yours. So the king's like, everybody leave! Which, if you know, this is where you need your Game of Thrones imagination. If you're in this day and age where you're an oppressing king and an emissary from the enemy whom you are oppressing comes into your midst, you do not say, everyone leave! You dismiss all of their guards. That's like the dumbest thing ever. You can get dead fast by doing that. So he says, everyone leaves. And the guards listen! It's like, this is, no one would ever do this, right? You got to get in the story. And then it's, oh my gosh. He says, everybody leaves. They do. And then, and then Ehud's like, I don't have a secret message. I have a message that's divine, a message from God. For it's like, he like, he like scaffolds the intrigue, right? And he ratchets it up a notch. And the king's like, oh my gosh. He stands up. Ehud takes, he's left-handed, takes the sword, plunges it into the belly of the man whose bowels discharge he basically, you know, all over the floor, right? Ehud locks the door from the inside, which of course begs the question, is he the original escape room guy? (laughs) Like, did he come up with this idea, right? He locks the door from the inside. People argue, like, how does this work? Some think he's on a balcony, and so he locks the balcony doors, and they can't get out. Other people argue he's actually locking it from the inside, and inside the throne room, uh, the the sort of king's palace area, there would have been a a biffy, uh, a bathroom of sorts. So Ehud, Game of Thrones here, he escapes like through the bathroom trail out into the city. And then he sounds the horn after he took a shower, maybe, I don't know, he sounds the horn, and all of Israel comes, and they, they wander down to Moab, and they kill 10,000 Moabites, all strong and vigorous. You can't make this kind of stuff up, right? Until, like, the next chapter, when the Israelites do evil in the sight of the Lord, and God sends them a man with long hair, and he kills people with the jawbone of a donkey, right? It's just like, it just keeps getting better and better. Why do I go through all this, this trouble, you might be thinking? For me, growing up, the Bible, it was boring, And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, it still is kind of boring, Micah. And it's okay for you to say that. I want to offer the possibility that this book, we've missed something if we think it's boring. We have been taught a way of handling it that doesn't allow your imagination to be activated whatsoever. Like, you have to come to this because there's one answer and you have to mine it until you find it. And if you don't get it, then you're wrong. I just don't think that's the nature of the book. I don't think that's the purpose of the book. 
I think God chooses in God's infinite wisdom to reveal the divine character of God in and through this book over and over and over and over again. And people come to it and they read it. And somehow, my, my roommate in college, to this day, Alec Jarvis, I said, how did you meet God? He's like, I literally, I picked up the book and I started reading Matthew. And I was encountered by the divine. And I started following Jesus. That's his story. How does this happen? This book, friends, why do we spend time studying these passages? Because it's dutiful and we're obligated to? No! It's like a, the rabbis say that the scriptures is like a gem, a 70-faced faceted gem. And each time you turn it, you get a different glimpse of some way that God is revealing God's self through it. So I just, I go through all of that trouble to tell this story in an amped up sort of, you know, uh, Micah fashion because I have a lot of fun doing it, but also I want to try to offer you the possibility that this book, it's actually quite interesting. Even if you check out of, like, if you have no convictions about it spiritually, that it's divine or divinely inspired in any way, even if you just read it, man, there's some really trippy, fun, interesting stories in this book. So I would just offer that to you as a way to like pick it up and read it again. Read the book of Judges. Start there. There's some crazy stories in here, okay? So that's the story. What about the story within the story? What's being said in this little story in the book of Judges, which is a part of Israel's story, which is a part of this long 66-book account of you and me and the world we live in? Oh, man, a lot. There are rivers that happen in the Bible, uh, ideas that flow from the beginning, and it shows up for the first time, and then it sort of carries its way all the way through the rest of the book. And a couple of these rivers show up in this passage. The first one we find in the book of Exodus, chapter 2. At the end of the, the second chapter of Exodus, we find an absolutely fascinating and breathtaking articulation of God and God's character. It reads this way. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looked, God saw, the verb, the Israelites, and was concerned. God knew them. One of the claims that the story of the scriptures is making is that God hears the cry of those who cry out. Over and over and over in the book of Judges, Israel cries out to the Lord, and God responds. God hears. Again and again and again in the scriptures we find, when somebody cries out to the Lord, when somebody cries out and says, God, I need you, find me a story where God says, sorry, I'm busy, or I'm not interested, or I'm not listening. Because that's the conventional wisdom about the gods. They're somewhere far off, distant, doing something else, not really caring about who you are and what you want or where you, what your need is. And this story makes it very clear over and over and over and over, again and again and again, that God hears the cry of those who cry out. I'm curious if you think about the action of crying out, like a moment in your life when you cried out for someone or something beyond yourself. Like what's necessary in that moment? I would suggest at least three things. Need, like a legitimate need. Knowledge of that need. And a moment of courage and vulnerability. Like what does it take, especially an adult or someone who is not an infant, to cry out? 
to tap in, <laughs> tap out, and say, like, I can't do it anymore. I need something. Need, knowledge of that need, vulnerability, courage. Maybe you're here this morning, and I, I, I've been doing this long enough to know that it's all here. When we gather, and so maybe you're here this morning, and you are in a swamp of a situation, and try as you might, you have clawed your way and are making zero progress Can I just maybe be one to remind you this morning, whatever baggage you brought in about God and about the Bible, I would like to just offer the possibility that this text testifies, I think Jesus makes consistent and clear that God hears the cry of those who cry out. The brokenhearted, the oppressed, the enslaved, the down and out, the lowly, those on the edges, on the margins, which is why Jesus is so fascinating and why the church and its response to those on the outside is also equally fascinating. God hears the cry. I would say not only do we learn that from this story, but we also see that God responds to a heart that turns. One of my favorite words in Hebrew is the word shuv, S-H-U-V. It's, we get the word teshuva, and it means Repent. Now, when I say the word repent, many of you immediately have a picture of like bullhorn guy, right? On the corner, like standing on a chair. In the name of Jesus, repent or burn in hell. You've seen that guy before? Yeah? He's usually at football games. And it's never, I don't know that I've ever seen it be a woman, which is another fascinating conversation for another day. But you immediately think of bullhorn guy, right? Repent or you're in big trouble. And it's immediately connected to sort of this moralistic, I'm in trouble, I've done something wrong, and I need to like beg for mercy. That completely misses shuv. It completely misses the word repent, which we see in scripture all over the place. To repent, shuv means to turn. So I'm headed in this direction. The scripture says repent, and I turn towards something else. Repent, shuv, repent, shuv. Torah the law, the first five books of the Bible, it means to cast an object, to, or cast a, uh, an object towards a target. So Torah literally means to aim something at something else. Sin, hate in Hebrew, means to miss that mark, and shuv, ret- repent, means to turn. That's the Bible in a nutshell, friends. Aim your life at this, Jesus says. When you miss, that's called sin, or missing the mark. Shuv, repent, turn, adjust. And the real key, the wisdom is, if you can learn to make the micro adjustments before you have to make the macro ones, it does a whole lot less damage in the world, right? So there you go, that's all free, not even in my notes. (laughs) Friends, God hears the cry of a heart, or God hears the cry and responds to a heart that turns. This is the story of the prodigal son, right? Jesus tells the story, and we fall in love with it. Why? Because there's something about it that's true. If you don't know the story, two brothers, a father. One brother, the younger brother, comes to the father, says, give me my share of the inheritance, which is basically saying, to me, you're dead, give me my money. The father says, okay. He relents. He gives him what he wants, which is a lot like God. We say we want this. God says, I don't think that's a good idea, but I'll give you what you want. There you go. So the guy, the young son, he takes the money, he leaves. He wanders far, far, far away from home. He squanders all of the money and all of the resources on everything that he shouldn't. He finds himself in a pigsty, eating the food that the servant or the master is feeding the pigs. And he says to himself, it's got to be better at my father's house than it is here. I'll go. I'll beg for mercy. I will be a servant in my father's house and it will be better than this. So he makes his way back home. And this is where every parent in the room should just lose it, right? 
It says, when the father saw the son, which means what? He's waiting for him. He's standing there, and he sees him far off, and he just strips, he basically makes a fool of himself culturally. He strips off his robes. He takes his, what do they call them? Slips? No, Hadley, where are you? Uh, they're like the, they're the, new, the newfangled things all these kids are wearing. Slides! He, he kicks off his slides, and he runs down the, 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 the roadway, and he embraces his son, and he says, welcome home. What is God like? There it is, friends. When we turn, when we respond, and we turn, God is waiting. God is not busy. God is not absent. God is not somewhere else. God does not have a lightning bolt waiting for you. The scriptures make it very clear that the nature of this God, when you turn, you are met with open arms, with grace. God's patience for the Israelites in Judges never runs out. They find themselves in the same place over and over and over again, and God keeps saying, here's a deliverer. Come back. I don't know if you're a parent or not, but we have kids 9, nine to 13, and we were just exiting a stage where a lot of patience was necessary, and there were days when I'm like, I have had it up to here, to your room, you're grounded for your life. God never says that. God never says, I have had it with you, away from me. God says, come home. Shuv, I don't know where you've come from this morning, but maybe this reminder of God's heart and God's nature is what you need to hear. And I would just, like, I'm staking my life on it that this is actually what God is like. And Judges is one small story in a, in a small book, in a bigger book that was written 3,000 years ago. And it reminds us that God hears the cry and responds to a heart that turns. Lastly, I would say this, the myth of redemptive violence. I want to suggest a way of reading the book of Judges that doesn't confirm maybe some of your, oh, see, I told you that's what the Bible's about, a bloodthirsty, vengeful God who's out for retribution and violence where everybody dies in the name of God's people. Did you notice that it's not God who commands them to kill the 10,000 Moabites? Did you notice that? And often in, the, in these cases or these stories, you, you get that, where the storyteller or the people who are doing it are like, in the name of God, we're going to do this. Has that ever happened before in history? Where somebody says, in the name of God, we're going to do this, but it actually maybe wasn't God's intent or God's idea, right? You tracking with me? I want to suggest the possibility that in the book of Judges, if you read it as a whole, you hear a trope where the author is like, and they killed a bunch of people in the name of God, which wasn't God's idea. And there was peace, which is the absence of war. But not really, because we know what peace means. It's shalom, it's, it's, it's the garden, it's Hebrew. And then they turned their hearts in on themselves again, and they were given over into the hands of oppressing kings and nations, and they cried out, and I sent them a deliverer, and I offered them a way forward, which, which actually was the way of peace, but they kept taking the bait. And they found themselves in the same place again and again and again and again and again. Violence, more violence. And guess what? It doesn't win. Violence is a zero-sum game. And it never produces life. It only takes it. They keep thinking that violence is the way forward. That this kind of power where the kings has the power and it's always power over and domination, they think that that's going to do it. That's going to 
domination and kings and land and money and power would satisfy them, and they keep finding themselves in the same exact place. What does it get them? They're crying out again, and they need redemption again. Violence and death is antithetical to the nature of God, revealed to us in Jesus and in the scriptures. It never pays out. It's always a zero-sum game, and yet somehow we forget this. We think that power should look this way, and the scriptures and Jesus say, no, actually, it's the opposite. Self-sacrificial love, cost to yourself for the benefit of the other, and forgiveness is actually the way forward. It leads home. It's the way back to the garden. Follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. It will only cost you your life, but in losing your life, you'll actually find it. It's the great paradox. It's the great mystery. Power this way always leads to death. Don't do it. And yet we keep finding ourselves in the same position, don't we? So the question of the book of Judges, I would suggest, for you to think about this morning, is do you believe it? Do you believe Jesus when he says, pray for your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Do not return violence with violence. Actually, return violence with self-sacrificial love in the name of the cross and offer forgiveness and mercy. And we think, that doesn't actually work, does it? I mean, we have to like shore up our bombs and our weapons and our guns because people are out to get us. And if we don't defend ourselves, then who will? I mean, is this not the same old question that every human have been asking from the beginning? And God says, time out, y'all. It's this way. It's this way home. I will send someone to you who will embody it. And who will take it all the way to its ridiculous conclusion where violence, where whatever you think, here's the thing, I will give one more sacrifice to end all sacrifices, so no more are needed. To, to, to show the ridiculous nature of redemptive violence. And God says, do you believe me or not? So the book of Judges, the left-handed warrior and the fat man, 3,000 years ago, in a book, a small story, in a small book. And now here we are. So my friends, a few things for you to consider this morning. Do we really believe that Jesus is the way? Not the exclusionary caveat that keeps everybody out who doesn't believe the right things. But he's really the way. The way to truth, which is the most resonating way to live where everything in you vibrates and says yes to that. Every good story, by the way, every good movie, it has self-sacrificial love for the benefit of another. And we just like raise our glasses and say so good to that. Why? Because it's true. Why do we have such a hard time believing it? So do you. Will you? If you're in a spot where you're like, I can't do it anymore. Cry out. Repent. Turn. Follow this way that Jesus sets before us and says, follow me all the way, even if it costs you your life, because guess what? Secret. In the end, you might lose your life, but you'll actually find it. And this way leads to life. This way leads to home. So that's, my friends, what we're hoping to do at Awaken. That's what I think the Church of Jesus Christ should be hoping to do. And so I offer it to you for your consideration. Either it's true or it's not. I think it is. Pray with me. God, this morning we gather in your name 
and we walk through a story written 3,000 years ago to a group of people many of us are not a part of, and yet we have made our way here where the honest cry of a needy person who cannot make it work, fix it, gather it, create it, manufacture it on their own, just says, I can't do it. And we see that in this story and all these other stories that you hear the honest cry, that you respond, that we could tell story after story after story of people who have been met by you when we turn, when we say, here I am. We are not met with silence. We're not met with abandonment. We're met with, here I am, from you. And God, whatever version of power, whatever version of the way forward that we think is the way that is influenced by the ways of this world, I pray that you would rid us of them, that we would be infused with your spirit and with the power and the love that takes Jesus all the way to the cross and out of the ground in resurrection and new life. May it be true of us, God. In this moment of silence, meet us where we are. Invite us to whatever we need. Church of Jesus, it's good to be with you today. Sometimes I, I really look forward to coming on Sunday and being with you. Sometimes not so much, but <clears throat> today was one of those days. It's really good to be with you. So may the Lord bless you. Actually, not may. There is no may in this, by the way, if you didn't know. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. amen. See if we can't change the world with a little bit of love, huh? Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.